Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Amen, amen. Well, hey, I want to welcome you guys to Seacoast and uh, specifically to week number two of a series that we kicked off last week entitled Summer of Somebodies. All throughout the month of August, we have some uh, incredible guest speakers coming to kind of share their story and their testimony and how God is intervening and how God is showing up and what he's doing really in their uh, lives actively. And so I have the honor and privilege today of introducing our guest speaker today. His name is Chris, and he really does have such a phenomenal and incredible ability to really communicate God's word. And I guess a really captivating and magnetic and let's say culturally relevant way for really this next generation. And maybe greater than any of the external gifts that I've seen that Chris has, for me, he's a man that emulates really the quality of faithfulness to the Lord when God doesn't always show up in our lives in the ways in which we hoped and dreamed and maybe even prayed for, right? And so you're going to hear a little of his story today. Over the last maybe year or so, has experienced really some deep pain and even some tragic loss. He's going to share some really vulnerable stuff with us today. And that's a really impactful story about what God is doing, how God is continuing to reveal himself day in and day out really to him. But another favorite thing that I love about him is that he's a fellow youth pastor just like me. And he's been one for about as long as I have, 11 or 12 years or so. And so you know if he can, and he's a good youth pastor. And so if he can keep a bunch of students' attention for like 30 or 40 minutes, he's going to do a great job at keeping ours. Would you guys welcome to the stage Chris Hilgen? Um, there are certain words that we use in America, and we don't really know what they mean. We just kind of say them, you know what I mean? We don't really know what they are. Uh, I have five kids, um, which is entirely too many. Am I right? (laughs) I love when people hear that and they go, that's too many. And I'm like, what do you want me to do, Brenda? Like, (laughs) give one back? Like, (laughs) sorry. Um... My son, Brady, is four years old, and I, I'm not a handyman. There's like, there should be a step below when I say not a handyman. I'm that guy. I'm the, I don't know anything about anything. <clears throat> but I was trying to hang some pictures in our house, and so I have like a drill, and I'm like drilling into the wall, and um, the lights flickered, you know? There's an electrician in, the, electrician in the house right now that's just going, oh, no. But the lights flickered, and the TV went off, and then the lights went off in the house, and I'm holding a drill in my hand, and I look at my son, Brady, who's got his own little belt on. I have, like, my belt with tools, and he just put a dress belt on from church. And just, he was going to help me. And as I was staring at him, when all the lights went out, it was dark in our house, and I looked at him, and I said, this is a conundrum, right? So five minutes later, we get everything figured out, and I said, Brady, can you hand me the drill? I got back up on the ladder, and I forgot the drill down there, and I said, can you hand me that that drill, and he said, don't you mean the conundrum? <laughs> and I realized, not that long ago, I was holding a drill in my hand, and I just, what did I tell him? This is a conundrum. So in his world, we were having like a Sunday school, like a, 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 cl- a classroom session, and I'm explaining to him what things are called in the universe. This is a conundrum, he thought I meant, and it's not, right? Like, and instead of explaining what a conundrum is, I thought it'd be cute to see how long it will take for him in his life to figure out that drills are not called conundrums. <laughs> but we say stuff, you know? Like I, I w- it was last week where I realized that the words to La Bamba are not, La Bamba. And you guys thought that was what it was? Anyone, did anyone just think you made noise before La Bamba? 
right? We don't even care what the actual words are. Para bailar la bamba. In order to dance la bamba, you need a little bit of grace. That's what the chorus says. But we don't know that, right? We're just, you have a drink and you go, right? Just everyone party. It's a good time. Uh, not knowing the difference between a conundrum and a drill for a four-year-old is probably not too costly an endeavor. Like not knowing the word, the words of La Bamba, at the very worst, will get you embarrassed at karaoke night. But, the, but there are words in our language, particularly when it comes to interacting with the scriptures, interacting with the church, interacting with Jesus, that if, if we don't understand the words properly, they can, they can be absolutely detrimental. There are certain words in the English language that make all the difference in the world. Like, um, kind of, right? Like, that's an important word. It can make all the difference in the world, right? I love you. Kind of. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you are my son. Kind of. Right? Like that, it, it's, there's a big difference there. Uh, the, the, I'm... I'm sitting in the front row and I'm listening to the songs and there's a word that, that is repeated again and again in all these songs and it actually is a pretty pivotal word. And it's actually a really big word in scripture. It's one of the, characteristic, the, the characteristics of God and it's that God is good, right? We say that all the time. Uh, all the time God is good and God is good all the time, right? You ever heard that before? It's an old liturgical saying that we would say back and forth to each other. It's littered all over the scripture, this idea that God is good. Um, in the song we sang, I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory for the battle belongs to the Lord. And then it says uh, in the bridge, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you, and you turn it for good. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. Uh, the, the, or you are a good, good father. Um, we, we keep repeating words sometimes, and if we never stop and go, what am I saying, we can find ourselves in a, in a conundrum, in a very similar situation. Because if you grew up in a church like I grew up in church, you, you, can, you can go week after week, and you can feel intrinsically or internally like your, your, your soul's house is on fire. The, the, the very internal or external circumstances in your life are all upside down. The, everything in your life seems backwards. God seems to be absent. There's, there's a great forsakenness that our souls can feel. We can even sit then in places. We can go to church and we can know the stories of the people around us. And yet it's like it's, 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 we've all learned this Christianese. We've all, we've all learned this way of being, this way of interacting, this, this Christian social contract that when we enter into church, we are going to lay the those things to the side, and we are going to have this, this super ego, right? It's, this is like a Freudian, Jungian theory. We have this version of ourselves we want to project to people, and we, we can do so not just with those around us, but we can do so with God. That maybe if you grew up in church, you grew up like coloring pictures of Jesus. Like what pictures did you color, right? Uh, Jesus holding lambs, you know, like one tucked under each arm, <laughs> sprouting rainbows, like daisies growing up, and you draw this picture, right? And you, you give Jesus like blonde hair and blue eyes, and now you get older, you're like, I'm not sure that's what he looked like. Okay, anyway, but you, and then it's like Jesus, and he's like with little children, and he's like having this conversation. And, and then like every modern picture of Jesus, like every portrait of Jesus, he's always has this like stern, like, you know, he's like this very serious Messiah figure. And then there's like one picture of him laughing, like, <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? If you grew up in a Christian household, your grandma has it where he's just, ah. And, and, but, but sometimes it feels like in, in the middle of our human experiences, we can sit there and go like, 
well, if God is a God of, of people who have it all together, then maybe God's not the God of my situation. And, and we're watching people walk away from the church, particularly this next generation of students, are walking away from the church at a clip of 75% after they graduate high school. 75% of high school graduates will leave the church. Why? I, I think when we talk about the idea of conundrums, the idea of God's goodness, it might be one of the most important aspects to why for so many of us, the story, the, the meta-narrative of Jesus, the meta-narrative of scripture seems to not fit with the meta-narrative of my life. The misunderstanding of the word good, it's not like La Mamba, and it's not like a drill. It, it's, it's intrinsically and at our core, it's a difference maker. And so we ask a simple question this morning to tease out this very profound truth. Like when we say that God is good, what do we mean? Have you ever been in a place where you're pretty, you're pretty sure God's not that good? Like what, what do you do in your life when the miscarriage happens, when infertility strikes, when, 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 when you're struggling with mental health issues, when your marriage is on the fritz, when divorce plugs your family? Like these are the real things of life. And, and, and then it's really hard to sing phrases like, I'm going to see a victory. You ever, like, you ever like read lyrics on a screen and then you pause because you're like, I'm not so sure I can sing that, you know? Like there was an old song that was like, in all I do, I honor you. Right? As I sing right now, you're thinking to yourself, why isn't he on the worship team? Strictly political, guys. <laughs> it's, I auditioned. Nick got it. Yeah, but anyway, turns out he's a voice of an angel. <laughs> How am I supposed to compete against that, right? But it was this, uh, in all I do, I honor you. And I would, I'd sing that and I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. That, that doesn't feel true to me. You're a good, good father. I, sometimes I can find myself just going, I might know cognitively that the Bible says you're a good father, but what? <laughs> Any of y'all have experiences that seem to betray that truth? Like sometimes it's hard to get like super honest in, in church, right? But like because we're so used to the projection, right? I grew up in the Midwest. My dad was a Lutheran pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Y'all ever flown over that state? <laughs> there's actually, there's a whole land between the West and East Coast full of salt of the earth people. <laughs> Four or five of them. Um, people, not salty there, people, they're all salt of the earth, but anyway, but I grew up, my mom had like the perm, and it was like the higher the hair, the closer to heaven, you know what I'm talking about, and so, and maybe you had a similar experience where like you would go to church, and um, on your way to church, your mom would be like, shut up, she's like, you know, smacking you in the back seat, this is like before seat belts, where if you were quick enough, and you knew mom's arm was coming, right, especially if you, you want to sit directly behind her, okay? Because if she's driving like this, my two brothers would be in the, the far right and the middle seat, fools, right? Because once she starts going, it's boom, boom. You know what's hard? This maneuver. And without a seatbelt, you could kind of crawl up on your seat and then she would get the edge of your leg. And if she barely touched it, you would go, ow, oh! if you were smart. If you were an idiot, you would go, that didn't hurt, right? Now that I have kids, 
When my kid goes, that didn't hurt, I'm always like, oh, it didn't hurt, did it, right? It's like this primal infusion comes into my soul where I'm like, oh, really? Wait for this one. <laughs> I, don't call anyone. I just, I was joking. Um, no, I'm joking. Anyway, then you, you get to church and... And you, you I, I would watch my mom fundamentally change, and it was like, why are you the worst kids ever? This is the, and then she'd open the car door to church, and she'd be like, oh, hello. <laughs> she, like, would extend her arms, like, Jesus in the Last Supper painting, just like, <laughs> she's, like, walking to church, like, she can't fit through doors, because she's, her arms are spread. And, like, what does that teach you as a, as a kid? Why did we, why did we as, as a family fundamentally change when we got to church? Because this is who we are at church. Because this is who God wants in his pews. Because this is, we don't want people asking questions about the difficulty of our household. Because the divorce that seems to be coming is not something that they're willing to have a conversation about. Because we want to make sure that when we're standing in the, in the pews and we're standing up to sing, that God sees the version of us that we project. That, that God is only going to see so far as I want him to see. And we, we treat God kind of like this distant, like great uncle figure where we see him once or twice a year and we tell him just the, oh yeah, I've been doing good in math class and all this stuff, but, but like the deep, dark thoughts that we have and, and, and the sin that pervades ourselves and, and the, 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 the ways that we have failed again and again when it comes to sin and, and living up to the glory of, of the worth that Christ has called us to, like we just leave all those back at home. That's not, that's not for us at church. And so we can get in this idea over and over again that church is for people who have it together. Because until you get into the rat race of going, oh, we, all, we can all pretend this is the way that it is, we look at our lives and we go, I don't think church is for me and I don't think Jesus is for me. There, every picture I color of Jesus is him doing, holding lambs and, and like hanging out with kids and you know, like uh, walking on water and he's got a smile on his face. And, but th- there's like really, there's a lot of things in scripture that don't make coloring books. You know what I mean? You wouldn't buy the, like, if I, if I made for you, like, Genesis through Revelation coloring book, you would have to rip out whole sections of it. You know what I mean? Like, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. We, we've colored that picture before. Have you colored the picture about what happens when he comes back down the mountain? Where all the Israelites are in orgy? No? You haven't called that picture yet? That's what happens. And the, the wrath of God burns fervently against, right? We're like, we're just going to scare. We're going to go right to Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> like, this is going to be great. But when we, when we kind of copacetically sanitize scripture, we can kind of feel like when we have our brokenness or our doubts or our confusion or our pain or our grief or our suffering, that we have a distant God because he's just a God who's familiar with those things. He's comfortable with those images. He's, he's, he's there for when I'm good. And so we have this, this idea that the church is a place for people who are healthy. It's for people who are faith-filled. And, and I gotta tell you something. Like, Jesus was confronted with this very thing. You know what he said? He said, my church is not for the healthy. It's for the sick. And as we, as we kind of examine this word, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 8. 
we're going to kind of, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this word kind of in conclusion of, of this conversation. But I know that in a room of, of this size, a, a lot of us are, we're sorting through the valley much more than we're trying to make sense of the mountaintops. And, and it seems like the, the older that I get, the more that these, um, like C.S. Lewis wrote one time, we ask the question all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? And he said, the real question should be, why do good things happen at all? In a fallen, broken world, when we watch the life of Jesus play itself out, right? He was poor, he was destitute, he was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth, he was mocked, spit on, beaten, humiliated, struck down, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, and all of his friends betray him and leave him. And then the call of Christianity is to follow Jesus, but then when we experience any of those things, we check out. Right? What does Jesus say? If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we're willing to follow him until he goes to the very places that he went in Scripture. And then we go, no, this is not what I signed up for. We have it somewhere in our worldview that we actually deserve a kinder, gentler, healthier, more significant life than Jesus had, even though he seems to be the core of what we're choosing to follow. To follow Jesus without the very things that he underwent, without the suffering and the grief and the pain and, and the, the mistreatment that he underwent is like wanting to be just like uh, uh, LeBron James except for the whole basketball thing. I want to be just, I, I want to be just like Rod Stewart minus the music. I want to be, I want to be just like Taylor Swift except for the whole country music thing, except for the whole uh, tour and music and songwriting thing. It, it, it is so core and fundamental. When, when the Old Testament speaks of Jesus, when it talks about this Messiah, it calls him the suffering servant. When Isaiah, when Isaiah kind of teases out who this Messiah is going to be, Isaiah 53, it says he was going to be a man. He grew up like a tender shoot before us, and yet we didn't think anything of him. He was despised, spit on, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. We esteemed him not. He was a man by whom people would hide their faces, the punishment that was brought on him has brought us peace with God and by his wounds we've become healed. Where did we get this idea that as soon as we turn to Jesus, our life is in any way gonna get simpler, easier, or that at least the confusion will stop? We watch his very core, his disciples, when, when suffering hits, they scatter. They doubt. They're confused. And, but the Bible doesn't censor that fact, right? Like if I was writing the Bible and I was trying to really convince you that Jesus was the king, Jesus was the Messiah, and I watch all of his closest followers who should be all in, right? Like on, on Easter morning, they should have all been there at the tomb with lawn chairs and little signs like, here we go. Were they there? No. Who's the doubter of the group? Trivia question. Who's the doubter? Thomas? All of them are doubters. Thomas I guarantee you when we get to heaven and we meet Thomas, he's going to be like, I've got a bone to pick with all of y'all. I'm the doubter. No one was there. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. I just said, I want proof, and I'm the doubter? They all doubted. They didn't think he came back from the dead. Who found the tomb empty? Women. They went because they knew he was going to be resurrected, right? No! What were they there to do? Put burial spices on him to help preserve his dead corpse. 
And yet Jesus looks at the narrative of his story, the confusion and the doubt and the pain and the grief and the suffering of his disciples, and that's just before he died. And then he comes back from the dead, and then he sends all of these people off to preach the mission and to preach the goodness and the gospel of Jesus. And what happens to all of them? They all die. Well, at least Paul, 13 letters in the New Testament, this guy wrote amazing literature, amazing theology. This guy was, what happened to him? He gets his head cut off in Nero's circus. What are we doing, right? If I'm trying to convince you that God is God and that I want you to sign up for following him, and if that was my main objective was to show you that your life is going to get better with Jesus, I would censor all of these things. And yet Jesus says, print it. That's good Bible. Print it. Put it in there. And so sometimes in the middle of this, we read, story, we, we read passages like this, but we do it in a way that we don't do anything else. We, we take kind of these coffee mug phrases that we keep slapping on uh, t-shirts and apparel and coffee mugs and on our front door, and, but we don't read them in context, okay? So w- when we take these feel-good coffee mug phrases without having them in context, what we do is we begin to drip into ourselves, right, into our very soul, these half-truths, myth-truths, mistruths or flat-out lies about who God is, what he wants, and what his character is. Because a lot of the times, the verses in context, they don't read so nice. They don't sound so good when you put them in their proper place. I'll give you an example. Uh, What does, anyone know what Philippians 4.13 is? Anyone know Philippians 4.13? Tim Tebow's eye block. Okay, 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 you win. Okay, 10 points for Gryffindor. Uh, What is it? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who, ah, nice. Philippians 4.12, right? We just kind of go, I don't know, but that 13 is good. That 13 is like, I remember growing up and playing football and I would like put it on my eye black because Tim Tebow did, right? Because it gave him supernatural powers. To get signed, even though he couldn't throw a football very good. And I would like wear it. And I just thought, I would like, before hiking the ball, I'd be like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, it like God's gonna give me some supernatural ability to throw a ball better than I normally could, as if he cares, right? I wanna make sure this guy's a really good quarterback. I don't, what? Who cares? Do you think? I don't know. That's difficult for me to figure out. But it's not difficult when you read 4, 11, 12 before 13. See, in context, Philippians 4.13 says this. Paul begins by saying, I know what it's like to have a lot and what it's like to have nothing. I have been spit on. I have been shipwrecked. I have been bitten by a snake more than once. I have a thorn in my side that God refuses to heal. I have been, I have been put into Roman jails. I have, been, I have been whipped within an inch of my life. I have, been, I have been persecuted in every single way. Pressed but not crushed. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck out but not destroyed. And I can do all of these things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, the Bible, we're stealing someone's mail that they've written to each other. Do you realize that? Paul wasn't like, Philippians 4, verse 1. Now it's 2. The Masoretes came in and did that because before that, we didn't know how to turn to places in the scriptures. But it was never meant to be broken up by chapter and verse. It was one letter. Could you imagine if you wrote a letter to your beloved, you wrote a letter to someone else, and they took it, and they went, hmm, right here. And they took a sentence out of it, and they went, this is probably what this person meant by this letter. 
as the author, you would go, what? Try reading a book like that, right? Can you read a book and just do one sentence and go, right? Read Cinderella. And she did not do her chores that night, so her evil stepmother got very angry. You'd be like, Cinderella, get on it! This book is about a lazy woman who does not do what her stepmother, who I'm sure was a nice woman, did, right? You would miss the whole point. You wouldn't know about pumpkins turning into carriages. You wouldn't know about the abuse that she had undergone. You wouldn't know about the death of her father. You wouldn't know about any of those things. And we do that with this, and, and, and much more dangerous than misreading Cinderella, we, we open up the very divine, authoritative word of God, and we can do the same thing. Verse 28, Romans chapter 8. What does this word mean? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Once I start it, you might not know, when I say like Romans 8, 28, you might go like, what's Romans 8, 28? But as soon as you start reading it, we all go, oh, I'm, I'm you know, if you've been in church for any significant period of time, we, we can be familiar with that verse, okay? So when I say God works for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose, when you hear the word good, if you're a, if you're a, a Western European, postmodern American, whatever it is, and I say God is going to work for your good, and I told you to define the word good, in the way that we perceive it, what do we think God is promising here? When he says, I'm going to work for your good, help me out. What are some things that we think God's promising? Success. Who said that? Okay, 10 points for Hufflepuff. He's promising success. What is he saying? Right? Uh, we, we, let's take Psalm chapter 1. Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, or sit in the seat of scoffers, or stand in the way of sinners, but they delight in the word of God. They're like a tree that's been transplanted by streams of water and yields its fruit in season. Everything they does prospers. And we just take that word, everything he does prospers. God's promising us success. So if you in your life are following Jesus, but you're not seeing success, you're doing something wrong. What else do we think by good? What does good mean? Happy. Is everyone in here happy? Because if you're not, let me tell you the conditionals here. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So there's two reasons why perhaps you're not happy. Either you don't love God or he hasn't called you to his purposes. If you're sad in here, what a bummer for you. <laughs> because the promise is pretty clear though. God works for your good and if goodness is happiness, then you're failing. What else does good mean? Yeah, financial success, money, which is why all of us in here don't struggle with financial issues. You've never lost a job. You've never had some unfairness at work. You've never had a coworker that is absolutely underqualified, but because of politics gets a job that you deserve. You, that's why you've never experienced these things before. Because God is going to work for your good. Give me one more. Health. 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 That's why all of us as Christians all of our great-great-great-grandmothers are just putzing around still. We don't die. That's the beauty of Christians. We don't get sick. We don't get cancer. On March 24th of last year, my fifth child was born. Her name's Finley. Uh, a little bit after that, my wife started complaining of having back pains. So we called the doctor. They said, come in and get a scan. She gets diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolism is a blood clot on your lungs. The, the danger of a pulmonary embolism is that if it breaks free from your lungs, it can go into your heart and it can kill you. 
25% of all people with pulmonary embolisms, the first symptom they have is death. My wife knew this. She was pre-med in college, basically a superhero, right? Started five businesses, gave birth to our fifth child in the corner of our bedroom in 59 minutes. Superhero. She understood what this meant. We go to the doctor, they start her on some blood thinners in order to take care of the blood clot. We go to bed that next night after coming home, and I'm thinking, God is good. All the time and all the time, God is good. She wakes up at midnight, and she wakes me up, and she says, Christopher, I'm dying. And I was like, right, I'm like, kind of, I'm just trying to get my bearings, and I'm like, what do you mean you're dying? Like, first of all, how would you even know that sensation that you're dying, you've never done that, you know, like you've never done it before. And she's like, I can feel it, 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 it went in my heart and now it's in my heart and I'm gonna die. I wanna wake up the kids and say goodbye to them. And I'm like, I don't know that that's a good idea. Like, so I'm, I'm calling an ambulance and I'm calling the doctor and everything. And they said, well, it's, if she hasn't had blood to that part of her heart for a while, it can feel like an arrhythmia or a palpitation or a cardiac infarcture, but it is, it, it's, it's, it, this is not gonna end her life, right? Like, this is probably not what's going on. You wouldn't sense it, you wouldn't feel it, and you wouldn't have the experience of going through that. And so I talked to her through that, and, but it just scared her. It scared her so bad that the next night when we went to sleep, she thought to herself, well, I'm not gonna go back to sleep because I don't wanna wake up with that panic again. So she didn't sleep that night. And then she didn't sleep the next night. And then she didn't sleep the next night. And she didn't sleep for 10 nights in a row. The doctor said, you need to get some sleep. And she said, I can't. I just can't do it. I'm so afraid of what's going to happen if I go to sleep. We finally have our families complete. We finally have this beautiful marriage. We have our future laid out in front of us, and I just keep feeling like someone's going to rob it from me as soon as I go to sleep. The doctor said, listen, Paige, if you put someone in a room and you take away food, water, and sleep, the sleep will almost always kill them first. And if it doesn't kill them, your brain is neuroplastic. It rewires the synapses. It changes fundamentally what you can do. Your your brain is like Play-Doh. If you don't let it sleep, it can turn on you. My wife began to, to deal with psychosis. She began to deal with multiple personalities. She, she started to see the world differently than she normally would because of not sleeping for so long. It was deep trauma on her brain. And, and, and every day, we're going to, to different therapies. We're going to EMDR. We're going to exposure therapy. We're going to everything. Basically, we had to treat her like someone who had just gotten home from war. That was the trauma that 10 days of no sleeping will do to your brain. And so we went to a trauma clinic, and they measure what's called the trauma line of your brain. The average American's trauma line is about a 2 or a 3. Someone who comes home from Iraq is about a 31. Paige registered a 64. So... The doctor said, if you want to get any help for her, you have to start by getting that trauma line down. So she did brainwave optimization, all these other things, tried to figure out what was going on. And, and the doctor said, just keep her away from any kind of trauma. And, and you start to sit in this moment where Paige started talking about having suicidal ideation. And this is a woman who's never struggled with mental illness. She's never had depression and anxiety. She didn't even understand it. And now I'm sitting here as a pastor who just had our fifth kid and my wife's talking about thoughts of self-harm and suicide because she hasn't slept and she's no longer speaking or thinking or talking like herself. It's like sitting front row to someone's descent into the deepest part of mental illness. And, and you can sit there and you, can, you start to think about these ideas of God being good and God being sovereign and God being there and God doing something. And, and he calls himself the great physician. And sometimes you look at the great physician and go, then, then do, like, do something. Intervene somehow. And this doesn't seem like too lofty a request. It doesn't even seem like a selfish request. Like if I'm asking for a Lamborghini or like a new house or whatever, I get it, but I'm not. I just want my wife back. 
okay? And so the prayers are coming, and people start praying for us, and Paige was very open about what she was going through, even at this time, and she's, as she's experiencing these things, people are coming, they're praying for us, We've, and we tried everything under the sun, right? We tried, we, 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 we tried fi- figuring out, is there something spiritual going on? Is there whatever? But this was a, this was a blood-bought child of the Most High God. She was redeemed, and so it was like, we, we, we're trying to figure out all, everything about what's, what's happening, and, and the doctor said, just go back to your normal life and do something that's gonna keep her away from trauma. So the next week, I was supposed to teach up at Hume Lake. This was last July, and so the doctor said, that's great, go back up there. Are you familiar with that place? I'm like, yeah, we've been there for the last eight years. We love it, it's like a home away from home for us. So her psychiatrist says, go up there, just keep her away from trauma, try to get some help with the kids so that she can relax and everything, and night two that we're there, I'm teaching up on stage, I'm giving the gospel message to 1,500 high school students, and this lady off stage starts waving me off. And so I get off stage and I'm like, what, what is going on? She's like, you need to run with me to the infirmary right now. And my, when I got there, my son, my son Leo was unconscious sitting on the table. And my wife was trying to hold him and cradle his head. And at the same time, they figured out back in our hotel room there at, at camp that my wife's bottle of sleeping pills was totally gone. And so they thought, well, if he took, this is what the firefighter told me. He said, if, if, if your son, Leo, took those pills, if he's ingested them in his system, there's just nothing we can do. We're up on a mountain. We're two hours away from the nearest hospital that can help him. We can't lifelight anybody out of here because it's the middle of the night. So he said, I want you to get in your van. I want you to follow me down the mountain. It's going to be two hours until we get down to Reedley or down into that Fresno area. And once we get there, he, he said, if, if we ever stop, it's because we're going to go back and resuscitate your son. Just keep your distance and make sure you give us plenty of leeway. So every corner as that we're going down the mountain and the car and the, and the ambulance in front of me would come to a stop, I would just pray, like, keep going, keep going. I would see the red lights come up as they, bro- as they would break and then, and then it would keep going down. And, and the, but the whole, I'm just so mad at God. And, and, and I'm not mad, and it doesn't it even feel like a cultural Christianity kind of mad, like I know that I'm going to have some privileged life. It just felt like this simple ideas of scripture, like Jesus says, how many of you, if your son asked him for bread, would give him a snake instead? That's, it felt like what, that felt like my prayer. Bread. You are the great physician. You have come for the sick. You've figured all the, would you ju- just do the, the very basic things that you said you would do? Come in victory. I'm going to see you, victory. It's about time. It's about time to intervene somehow. And we get down the mountain, and, and, and Leo, after two and a half days of testing, gets diagnosed with something called acute onset cerebralitis. It turns out my son Brady dumped the pills down the toilet at the exact same time that Leo was having his fit. It, you couldn't have timed it more perfectly if you were trying to get someone to experience deep trauma. And when we got down to the hospital, my wife was holding Leo, and I could just see it in her face. The trauma had grown. We tried to go back and get her trauma line tested again. It's going the wrong direction. It's getting worse, significantly worse. And the doctor says it's time for, it, it's time for like the final straw. It's time to, uh, right? It's like the parable of the treasure in the field. Sell all you have to get this woman healthy. And I was like, you got it. So what is the best um, mental health facility in the world that deals with trauma? And there's a place in Tucson, Arizona. And, and I remember going to the, chur- to the church that I was working at at the time that I've since resigned from, and I, I went and I said, hey, I, do you have any insights? We had a counseling team there, and, and I remember Gary, this guy, he goes, hey, just make sure that this place is covered by your insurance or it's gonna be $40,000 for the month. And I remember thinking, I was like, Gary, 
what did you just say? Did you say check if they take my insurance? <laughs> Do you have any idea how insignificant the number 40,000 sounds when the trade-off is that I'm going to get my wife back, like the mother of my kids, my friend, my lover, like my, you, you think I care about 40,000? I was like, if I, I told him, if I'm naked on the side of the road with five kids and a wife and we have no house and no cars or anything, I'm going to feel like a rich man. So Gary, don't bring up insurance ever again. So we get on a plane, spend all of our savings, and we get up there and we go to Tucson, and I drop her off. And I remember thinking to myself, like, here's God's provision. Maybe he's, he wants to use us to, like, destigmatize mental health in the church community, so maybe he's using us for this thing, and God's going to redeem this whole thing, and he's going to show his goodness in the end, and everything's going to be just fine. So I remember dropping her off and feeling like for the first time in months, I wasn't responsible for keeping her alive. It was like some weight off your shoulders where you just go, but it's, it's just the most backwards, dark weight where you just go, oh man. But maybe this was God's provision all along. Maybe this is how God's gonna demonstrate his goodness, that even in the deepest valley, he's still present and that he's gonna provide. And eight days into her stay, she killed herself in the hospital And it's like you, you know, you. What do you do? Now what do you do? At least you had hope that there was going to be some type of victory at the, at the end of this, that God was going to redeem these things. And I'm sitting in the, I see the number from, Tucson come up on my phone and I talked to her every day since she'd been in there and the previous day I was bragging that I'd taken all five kids to Costco and they were all still alive and and so I get that call from that number and I'm downstairs and my parents are there because they're <clears throat> they were they lived in Bakersfield they were coming down to drop something off they were randomly down in San Diego so they were there that day and my brother and sister-in-law were there too and so I get the call I go upstairs and hey babe and it's three people. It's a doctor, a psychiatrist, and a lawyer. And they say, Mr. Hilkin, this morning your wife attempted suicide and she was successful. It's like, I know what you just said, but then you, it, just, like, it seeps into your soul and you just start to understand <clears throat> that you might never understand what was just said to you, you know? And then you, you start to play through pragmatically, what does this mean for me? Like, what does this mean for our kids? What does this mean for everything? Like, did you just tell me I'm a single dad of five kids? Like, did you just tell me I got to call her dad now and say, hey, remember when you gave her to me at the aisle and I said I would protect and provide and take care of her? Like, you want me to call him now and explain how I didn't do that? I was like, you can go to seminary if you want to, but do you know what it's like to try to explain to a seven-year-old that their mom killed themselves but still loves them? Or God, the ever-present help in trouble, just seems so absent. And I'm not, I'm like, if you're waiting for the big turn in the sermon where I go, but now look at me, it's, there's no turn. There's no turn. Just a dude sitting in the middle of grief going, <laughs> 
What do you do when the Jesus that you thought he was isn't the Jesus that he actually is? What do you do when the God who you, you just perceived through the coffee mugs and through the religious platitudes over and over again in your life, then life actually hits you? Now what do you do with that? I remember sitting there in that moment thinking, is this Christianity thing just something I can teach? Is this, a, is this a great theory or a great worldview of life or do I actually believe these things? Is this who I am or is this just what I do? And I remember a verse from John chapter six in that moment and Jesus gives this hard teaching in John chapter six and then it says a whole bunch of people leave him because they don't want to follow him anymore. They were there for his miracles. They were there for his tricks. They were there for his resurrections. They were there for all these cool things. They were there when he cast out demons. They were there when he fed them with uh, five loaves and two fish. They were there for everything. And then he says something offensive and says they all walk away. And then he turns around, he looks at his friend Peter, and he says, aren't you going to leave me too? And Peter's response has just become my response in this whole season. Where would I go? You alone hold the keys to eternal life. I believe that you are Lord and Messiah. Where would I go? Because, friend, your life with Jesus, isn't, there's a lot of times it's not going to make sense. But I guarantee you, your life without Jesus doesn't just not make a lot less sense. It's also meaningless and pointless, and redemptionless. And the beauty of this whole season for me is as everything in my life, including guarantees and safety and and some promise of immortality that we have intrinsically that we all ought to live until we're 75 and 85 and 95 years old, once all that gets stripped away from you, you're just sitting cross-legged in your child's room with Jesus across from you, holding you, and there's a sufficiency in that moment that I'd never experienced before. And like the emptiness of the world, it was just me and Jesus. And for the first time in my life, it was enough. But I want to ask you, what promises are we clinging to about what God's going to do in our life? Because it's really, I mean, it's really hard, right? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Help me out. Help me. Help me understand. And if you turn to culture, like, I'm legitimately thinking about writing a book called Dumb Junk People Have Said to Me Since My Wife Died. You guys, oh my gosh. Like, your wife died because God needed another angel. It's like, friend, Humans don't become angels. Secondly, angels don't have wings. So just read the Bible. They don't. Thirdly, the notion that God serendipitously took my wife away because he required something fundamentally goes against the idea that God is not a God of want. He is all sufficient in and of himself. Nothing that you're saying makes any sense. But people mean well. So instead of jumping into deep theology with them and the soteriology of everything, I just go, thanks. Probably. Or my favorite is like, don't, don't worry, God's got something better for you. It's like, excuse, what? Like two wives? What do you mean? What, what is that? Like what? What are you talking about? But see, it's been dripped into us so much. And, and, and this is the core of what, what we need to understand, that what we believe at our most fundamental level when suffering and, and when suffering and grief and pain hits, that's what comes out. It's not, a, it's not a thought through understanding. It is a visceral response. When pain hits and when suffering hits and when life hits the fan, what is most true in the deepest part of our hearts is what we bleed. This is what comes out. 
And so I ask you this question, what does it mean that God is good? One of the core principles of hermeneutics or or biblical interpretation is that you always use scripture to interpret scripture. And the, the beauty of the text is that the Bible doesn't write itself episodically in these Proverbs like the book of Proverbs does. But the rest of the Bible is written in prose. It's written as a letter. It's written as, as epistles. It's, it's written as a story, and it's meant to be read in its entirety. And, and if you just read Romans 8, 28, which a lot of us now, if we didn't even walking in here, can finish this sentence, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's like Philippians 4, 13. What does Romans 8, 28 say? For I know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now I'm gonna test you. What does Romans 8, 29 say? And I'm not sitting here acting like I have all this memorized. I didn't know what it meant until I started studying it because this is what I had to go to. What do you mean you're good? What, what does that mean? How do you promise good all the time? Here's what Romans 8.29 says. For those God has called, he's also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be, and here's the definition of good that God is using all throughout scripture, and every time we sing, and every time we say, and every time we ought to, we ought to mean this, conformed to the image of the Son. What does it mean that God's God's good? God's goodness implicates this, that our great creative sovereign God of the universe is capable in every single season to use it if we are willing to conform us, refine us, define us, and further transform us from the old broken Adam of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 into a brand new creation that is in Christ, that one day when I meet God face to face, I will be sanctified, not completely, but as much as I can be. The goodness of God implicates one thing, that God will use anything in your life to make you more like Jesus. That is the promise of scripture. And, and, and when Jesus is presented with this, in Mark chapter 10, there's a rich young ruler who walks up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. Jesus' response is really unusual. Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? Why would Jesus ask this question? Jesus says, why do you call me good? He can't possibly mean modern American goodness because I think we would all attribute that God is good, Right? He helps people, he helps widows, he, 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 he heals the, the, the blind, he makes the, the lame to walk and the, the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the mute to speak. We would all go, he seems like a pretty good person. But he's not saying that, is he? He's asking a simple question. He says, what do you mean that I'm good? You know what Jesus is asking? He's saying, did you just call me the perfect God of the universe? That's what the word good mean, means. Right? When, when, when God creates in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Do you think that means he was going sufficient? The word in the Hebrew is tov ma'ov. It was perfect. Perfection is to be in unison with Jesus. It is to be one with God in thought, word, action, deed, and attitude. That is what goodness is. And so God says, anything that you experience in life, I will use it to further transform you if you are faithful to me to be conformed to the image of my son. 
This is the promise we can take with us today. Can you get a massive job promotion and salary raise at your current place of employment and God use that to conform you further to the image of his son? Yes, how do we know that? Because we know that in all things God works to conform us to the image of his son. You can then all of a sudden find yourself in a surplus. You can be generous to the people around you. You can be generous to your church. You can help people who are in need. You can demonstrate the lack of mastery that money has over you. You can demonstrate a lack of idolatry to your children that while we have this money, it is not gonna control us. God doesn't mind you having things. He minds things having you. And so we can demonstrate that just like Jesus, we will not be controlled or tempted or brought in to idolize money. Can money conform you to the image of a son? For sure. Whether you have much or you have little, Romans 4 or Philippians 4, verse 12. Can you lose your job and be conformed to the image of a son? Yes, you can find yourself in a place where you are completely dependent, perhaps for the first time on Jesus to provide for you or maybe to not provide financially for you and you realize that the money that you had that you saw as some kind of a crutch or some kind of safety net didn't protect you and yet Jesus is still there. Can death bring you into a place where you're further conformed to the image of a son if you experience loss around you? 100%. As C.S. Lewis says, God can speak to us in our victory, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's like his great megaphone that he uses to arise and awake a deaf world. We know that in all things, God works for good. Good is conformity to the image of Jesus. Blessing is conformity to the image of Jesus. Matthew chapter five, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed, blessed. When we think blessings, we think money, riches, wealth, success. Blessings in the scriptures means proximity to Jesus, nearness and intimacy with the Father, further conformed to Jesus's likeness. How can we give the promise that someone in persecution is blessed? Because persecution almost always turns us further into the image of the Son that we want to be someday. Why is that so important? Why is God's love so perfectly seen oftentimes in our pain? Because it is through pain that Jesus oftentimes refines us the deepest. Like in fire, the gold is refined deepest when the fire is the hottest. And in doing so, one day I will meet the King of the universe face to face. And the only people who get to walk across the threshold into heaven are those who bear the image of the Son. And so we can look up at God and go, you are so good. And you will do do good for me. You are so perfect and you are perfecting things in me. And I know that sometimes perfection can look like a mountaintop and sometimes it means I'm gonna be perfected in the middle of the valley. But the beauty of the scriptures is that he gives us a little sneak peek into the end and guess what? He wins. And there comes a day where we will experience no more pain and no more suffering and no more mental illness and no more miscarriage, no more infertility. Cancer will be struck down. Every disease, neurological disorder will all be done away with. I'm gonna see a victory but it might not be until I see him face to face. And now we sit in the interim between now and that blessed moment where everything in life is completely redeemed and made new. God's justice comes and he lays his wrath on everything in our life that has brought us pain. And he does away with these things forever. But in the meantime, what what do you and I do when the God that we thought that we served comes in and our life looks different than we thought it was? Let me ask you a question. Have you negotiated a contract with Jesus that says, 
I will follow you if and only if. If you've got a contract with Jesus that says, God, I'll follow you if and only if, whatever words you say after if and only if is what you worship. It's not Jesus. I'll follow you if and only if my kids turn out good. You don't worship Jesus. You worship the success of your children. If and only if I'm healthy, then you worship yourself. You worship your own health. And, and I think sometimes Jesus, in his loving kindness, brings these things to bear and says, I love you too much for you to idolize this thing any further because God knows what you and I know. We all have a divine appointment with God one day. This isn't a story of some guy's great faith. This is a story of a dumpster fire of a man who chose to put a little bit of faith, broken, confused, and doubts but I just placed it in the right God and, and, and it's his goodness, not my great faith. I don't have great faith. I've got mustard seed faith, childlike faith. But faith's power is not in the size of it. It's in the size of what we put it in. So I, wanna, I, just, wanna, I just wanna ask you, do you have this experience in church? Do you have this experience in your own soul? Do you have this experience in your families where you just feel like maybe God doesn't want anything with someone broken and messed up like me? I can tell you 100%. You've never been nearer the cross when you think that God wants nothing to do with you because in the middle of that feeling, you are gonna submit yourself wholly and the goodness of God's grace and gospel is gonna ravage you unlike someone who thinks that they're worthy of it. And we exist in this promise that one day we will see all of our beloveds face to face. We will see Jesus face to face with no more pain and no more suffering. And in the meantime, what do we do with the God when who we thought he was is different than our life plays out? Let's pray. God, we just, we just kind of come before you and we, we kneel and we, uh, we worship you in the good things and the bad things. And sometimes... God, in my own soul, I've, I've so closely associated your goodness with good things, with more money, with more opportunity, with more uh, power, with uh, better health. And God, may we just fundamentally disconnect your goodness, which is your character, your unyielding, unchanging character with our life circumstances. Those are completely mutually exclusive. And, and while we can worship you for every good thing that happens in our life, every, every, every raise, every increase in, in power, every time we experience earthly things that are going well, may we never make that contract that, God, you're only good if those things go well. May we see you for who you are. May we see ourselves for who we are. May we worship you until the day we see you face to face and you make all things new. Let me pray. Amen. Hey, would you guys thank Chris with me for sharing his story? Thank you, Chris. And would you guys stand with me, please? Hey, one of the things I, 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 I love so much about Chris and I appreciate in his story is the vulnerability that he shared with us about the, the human experience of suffering. And one of the beauties of Scripture is that we have a God that promises to be present with us, like he talked about tonight, in the midst of our suffering. And our promise to you, uh, people of our church, is that we want to be a church that's with you as well. And so with that being said, we need you and we, we need you to understand that you don't have to do this whole life thing alone, separate. Whether, it be for, whether you're going through something difficult in this moment or whatever it may be, we want to be there for you. And so right now, right after service, we're going to have some of our serving elders up here. And so if there's something going on in your life, 
It could be mental health. It could be just any plethora of things going on in your life. Maybe you just need to cry with somebody. You need to connect with somebody. We have some people down front that would just love to sit with you, talk with you, cry with you, just be present with you. Hey, all throughout the month of August, we have some impactful, some incredible speakers um, that you're going to want to hear. And each one of their stories is going to impact you in an incredible way. And so uh, look forward to next week. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.